Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Miriam Andaman, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host, Dan Seligson, and our special guest co-host, Ashley Jacobs. Hi, guys. Hey, Miriam. Hey, Ashley. How are you? It's always great to be back here at the podcast garage. In fact, it's a very welcome break from, let's call it, High Street Studios. Nice to see you both. Yeah, I'm excited to be in a recording studio again with the overhead mics because it's bringing me back to my college radio days. Today, we are super excited to speak to Boston-based poet, performer, and publisher, Jonica Stuckey, the founding editor of the independent publishing company, Black Ocean, as well as an annual poetry journal. Jonica is the author of a few poetry collections. He is a two-time national haiku champion, and in 2010, he was voted Boston's best poet by the now-defunct Boston Phoenix. We will be talking with Jonica about his new work, Ascend, Ascend, written over the course of 20 days, coming in and out of trance states, brought on by intermittent fasting and somatic rituals while secluded in the tower of a hundred-year-old church. Ascend, Ascend is rooted in the Jewish mystical tradition of Hichalot literature, which chronicles an ascent of the Kabbalistic tree of life to witness the chariot of God, known as the Merkabah. This book-length poem presents a surreal mythological landscape with references to multiple religions and rituals and literary styles in a truly unique fashion. Blessed is the lotus, the day's bleeding wound. Blessed are the spiders, their alphabet, 26 stones, my corpse is dancing. Blessed are the worms, the maggots sexless and probing like tongues through the rotting soil. Blessed is the loam, blessed is the loam, the darkness, mushrooms blooming, teeth pushing through the earth's black and putrid gums. Blessed is the maw, the great maw, the mouth, the gnashing of continental shores. Blessed are the stones, the rocks, the island, all the world, a promontory scab hardening around the earth's myriad molten wounds. Blessed is the blood, the bile ascending, the gross moss of shapeless years forming on the eyeless trunks of trees. Blessed are the snakes, the dragons breathing, the giants eating, each dumb beast, our mothers, our fathers filled with blood. Blessed are the black cricket's legs singing furiously until the whole lake is on fire. Blessed is the fire. Blessed is the lake. Blessed are the cricket's black legs. Blessed is the trembling nerve of now the great topaz hurtling through galactic dark. Blessed is the dark, the knotted roots of the first tree, the fearful serpent uncoiling still as even the first stone turns to dust. Blessed is our fear, the great retching which rips us, wide-eyed, hairy, and blood-spattered, terribly laughing up from the mud. Blessed is the transfiguration of terror that wakens the crimson thread within. Blessed is our weaving and braiding, our crawling. Blessed is our climb. Blessed are we who flop from mud to soil to grass to trees. Blessed are our lungs, our hands. Blessed is the transmutation of air and fruit and meat to spirit. 
Blessed are the bees, blessed is their hive returning through each flaw of rain revealing the hierophany of nectar in the fresh light of the clouds' empty womb. Blessed is our moaning and shitting, our walking on quivering feet. Blessed is our walking and running, our speaking each day, our dying, our struggle toward freedom, our dying. Blessed is the fight for freedom even more than to be free. Blessed is our life. Blessed is our instrument responding with purity to the collapsing sigh of the world. Blessed is our cry, our cry, our radiant repeating, the gleaming cinder like honey, like wax, like roses, the world vanishing and nothing but us remaining beneath the abyss of God singing, I am the one that is not. And when the cry comes to no longer be the vessel, the cry comes not from your mouth alone. It is not you talking. It is ancestors of ancestors speaking with centuries upon centuries of mouths. It is not you alone desiring. It is a galaxy of descendants desiring down the long, fathomless pillar of your infinite heart. For between the void and the abyss, you alone struggle and are imperiled. And in your small earthen chest, one thing alone struggles and is imperiled. And when the cry comes, the cry comes in the cryptic tongue to pass beyond my body bastion of sugar and bone, my body monstrously shining above black lichen rivers, its curse like a star of blood erupting from my throat, a promise roaring jackals howling awful and grim, my body, my body, lust magnificent views of Byzantium crucified awake in me and me among my body idle and brutal let light thunder the first to adore my body my ghost my retinue of ghouls profane and dancing dizzy drunk and shrieking through a phantasmagoria of stars my body exquisite thighs streaming with blood, my body hungry and gaping, threaded with hands, my body, my tongue distended and dangling amid corpses and non-corpses, gung, gung, drone the bees. Wow. Thank you for being here on The Vibe of the Tribe, and thank you for that amazing reading. Thanks so much for having me. It's a lot different hearing you than it is reading it and <laughs> hearing it in my head. I have to tell you, wow. it's yeah, amazing. It definitely it's... elevates everything. So you describe this poem as being rooted in a Jewish form of literature that's focused on ascending to heaven to see God's chariot, either through visions or physically, and that's called hichalot literature. Tell us about this form of mystical literature and why it's so compelling to you. Uh, well, I should start with a caveat or a disclaimer that I am by no means a, an expert on uh, 
Jewish mystical literature in general. Um, I'm probably going to mispronounce a lot of words. That's okay. We do that too. <laughs> Miriam corrects all of us. <laughs> right. So it's fine. Uh, but um, yeah, so, you know, the, there's uh, Hichalat and Merkaba literature. Um, Hichalat is a sort of book of palaces and it describes the various palaces of heavens and the ascension through them. And then there's Merkaba literature, which is the chariot, or um, most famously Ezekiel's vision, the chariot of God. And together, we sort of refer to them as ascension literature, um, the, bo the books of palaces and, the, and of the chariot. Having grown up Jewish, I actually, um, probably like a lot of Jews, had almost no exposure to the more mystical canon in Jewish literature. Um, it wasn't until um, sometime in my early to mid thirties, um, I was actually, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine where I had, I was describing to him an experience I had, a psychedelic experience I had uh, after smoking DMT. I don't know if any of you yes. are aware of what DMT I don't is. Know what yes. it is. So DMT is really interesting. DMT is a naturally occurring chemical in the brain that shows up when you're dreaming and when you're dying. Um, and there is a way to uh, synthesize it or get it. If you listen to the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, uh, the question that you hear him ask most often is, hey, man, have you ever done DMT? It's a really interesting substance that I myself have never done, but it does uh, really enlighten you to a lot of things. Your ego is gone. You're really, you know, one with the world and yourself. And there's a feeling that you get, apparently, which also happens during sleep paralysis, if you've ever been... Uh, unfortunate enough to experience that very scary sensation where it's like there's God in the room. It's like this really weird feeling that like I can't put into words and it sounds super weird, but. Yeah, it, it's having experimented with a number of psychedelic substances in my youth. It wasn't until later on in adulthood that I tried DMT for the first time after having not done anything for many years. And it's true, uh, as you mentioned, the difference between DMT versus LSD or mushrooms or anything else uh, that people might be more familiar with is that it's an endogenous uh, substance versus exogenous. So our brains actually do uh, create it ourselves. So there are all these theories about why the brain creates DMT, and the brain is actually hungry for DMT. It metabolizes it like it does glucose. It's a, one of the only molecules that the brain does this for. And actually, a, a Jewish psychiatrist, Dr. Rick Strassman, wrote a book called DMT, The Spirit Molecule, where he he has all these sort of puts forth all these hypotheses about the function of DMT in the body. That aside, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about my experience on DMT. And he says to me, wow, it sounds like you saw the Merkaba. And I said, what's the Merkaba? And uh, he went on to describe and, you know, from his understanding what the Merkaba was, he sort of paraphrased Ezekiel's vision. And I said, yeah, it sounds like I saw the Merkaba. <laughs> uh, and so from that conversation, I immediately went on this uh, whole sort of deep dive rabbit hole of Ascension literature. And the more I read, the more resonant it was with my own experience. And that's how I got interested in that form of literature. Can you paraphrase Ezekiel's vision for us, please, especially for <laughs> those a, who don't know. It's a long vision. <laughs> yeah, it is, a, it is a long vision. But uh, essentially, a lot of the imagery that we sort of now take for granted or as canon uh, when it comes to things like archangels, seraphim, cherubim, 
Um, a lot of the imagery you see of sort of six-fold wings with faces in the middle of them or burning wheels, a lot, most of that imagery originates in Ezekiel's vision. And he talks about these sort of concentric wheels, that wheels are one of the most famous elements of that imagery. And he talks about these concentric wheels and, you know, choruses of wings and, uh, you know, the whirlwind that we hear in, uh, as a trope in a lot of actually Jewish mystical literature. Um, but it is one, one of the sort of earliest and most canonical contributions to that body of work. Obviously, to go through this 20-day process in a 100-year-old church uh, required some preparation and forward thinking. How did you kind of uh, prepare yourself to do this, and, and what sort of process did you go through once there to compose this, this collection of poetry? I should start off by saying I actually didn't set out to do this. I was participating in an artist's retreat in this church, that is specifically for artists who have esoteric or occult influences on their creative process. And while that was true for me, um, and I have been writing from sort of meditative and trance states for many, many years, my intention um, when I applied for and going into this retreat was not to write something in the vein of Ascension literature. I actually had a whole other book that I was planning to write. <laughs> and I had been making notes towards this other book for like two years. And the night before I left for the retreat, I'm packing up all my materials for the, for the retreat and I can't find my journal of notes. And I looked everywhere. I tore apart the entire house, uh, you know, dumped out all drawers, everything, and it was gone. And to this day, I still haven't found it. That book has just disappeared. Oh my God. An and, act of God. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> One from this earth. Um, and, and I was, I mean, I was utterly distraught. I was wrecked to the point, you know, I work full time. I have a lot of responsibilities. I had set aside all this time to write this book and to really unplug and, and do this. And I'm on the eve of departure. And now I have no idea what I'm going to spend that time doing. And I almost just canceled. And I almost just said, you know what? I'm just going to stay home. I'll go back to work on Monday. Forget it. And my wife talked me down off that ledge <laughs> uh, and said, you know, look at it as a, a Look at it as an opportunity. It's a blank slate. Sometimes great things come from that. So I left. I went to the artist residency. And because of the artists that were there and the, the idea of focusing on artists with these influences, there were like three Kabbalists there, <laughs> basically. And so as I went into the residency, the first few days, I was sort of feeling myself out. I was trying out my normal routine of meditating and then writing from that state and seeing where it led me. And as, you know, I'm sure the conversations I was having them started to creep in. And then, you know, this sort of scaffolding started to build in my mind of like, okay, this is where the writing is going. Maybe this is something I should try doing. So to answer your question about preparation, once I figured out that that was the direction that I wanted to go in and maybe there would be a way to find my way back into that Merkaba experience I had had many years ago, the first thing I did was I spent a few days just immersed 12 hours a day in either reading about ascension literature diving deeper into into reading the canon and reading a lot of mystical texts over the centuries and speaking with the other kabbalists that were there in the residency with me at that point i i decided that i did want to 
start doing some sort of more physical preparations. So I, I started off with intermittent fasting where I would fast for 16 hours a day and sort of break fast each day, but with, with the group that I was with at dinner, but I would start very early in the morning. And um, and there there are a sort of a number of other things I would do as the time progressed, which we can talk about if you're interested. But uh, as I would go and come back each day, I, you know, it's funny, my, my bedroom at the residency was in the basement of this church. It was, it was uh, subterranean. There were no windows, no light or anything. And I would wake up around dawn and then I would uh, fill a big jar of water, grab a couple books in my notebook, and then I would walk up from the basement through the rectory, through the chapel of the church, up three stories of the tower, and then up into this little six foot by six foot room at the very top of the tower that it got to from a ladder and a trap door. And then I would sort of do my work there for the whole day and then come back down and transcribe what I had written or experienced onto this long scroll that ended up being about 200 yards long by the end of the residency. Wow. It makes sense it was a scroll. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's its own strange story, <laughs> yeah. but I hadn't intended to write on oh, a really? scroll. But wow. as I was writing, um, you know, I was like, wow, this is going to be a very long poem. <laughs> and it felt like uh, it felt inadequate trying to track the poem in a notebook mm. page over page. And so I was thinking, you know, I wish if only I had like a really long roll of paper, then it would be really easy for me to follow the progression of the poem. I didn't mention this. I was just sort of thinking it in my head. And um, then one night, you know, all the artists, I was the only writer there. Everyone else was a visual artist. Mm. So one night, all six of us are hanging out together. And um, one of the artists who's who's, uh, the host of the hostess of the residency said, you know, if anyone wants to just kind of play around or doodle or whatever, we have a big roll of paper in the closet over there. (laughs) (laughs) And like my jaw dropped and my eyes lit up. I said, really, can I use it? And she said, yeah. And I pulled it out. And I was from then on every day, I would just transcribe it. Sounds like a lot of this experience was, I don't know if you know the term, hashgacha pratis, Mm. divine providence. Mm -hmm. So the Talmud teaches a famous story about four rabbinic figures who attempted the ascension journey, and it didn't work out so great for all of them. So in the Jewish tradition, trying to travel through the seven Kabbalistic realms or heavens, as they're described as quite dangerous, people are often discouraged from learning about the Merkabah unless they were advanced students of Kabbalah. Um, I know Maimonides' Rambam was like, no, no, don't do that. So were you concerned in any way, or did this make it more intriguing for you? I wasn't concerned. (laughs) Whether it intrigued me more, it wasn't, I never felt that there was an element of danger. It's interesting you mentioned that parable. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they talk about the four sages. In the Kabbalistic view of the Torah, there are four ways to interpret the Torah, four ways to read the Torah. There's the literal, the allegorical, the rabbinical, and then the mystical, yeah. right? And 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 that and you know, like everything in Judaism, there's like seven layers to that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's also there's a midrash that teaches four rungs to Jacob's ladder. There's uh, the uh, idea of uh, PRDS, Pardes or Paradise, yes. um, and th- and those all have. And then you can also, you know, there's was it the literal is action, the allegorical is speech, 
the rabbinical is thought and the mystical is beyond thought or nothingness. And then there are four sort of stages to the Kabbalistic tree of life as well. And, the, and those correspond with the four elements. So you start in earth and, and, the, and that's actually the structure of my book. And it goes back to how I wrote it is the first section is earth and, uh, and that's the blessed is the blessed is that, yeah. and that's the world of action, the literal world. And then you go into air and that's speech. And that, now we're in flight and, and that's sort of like the beginning of the ascension. And then there's, um, the world of water and, uh, and that's in the book where I meet these sort of Leviathan angels who chew me up and spit me out and tear me apart. And then the final uh, is the is the world of fire, the world beyond thought, the nothingness. And so when we talk about those four sages, and only one of them made it back with, with both his, <laughs> his body and his sanity right. intact. And I think that I think that um, the teaching there is, you know, I never thought of it as. Oh, you know, I, I could I could see a vision and be struck dead or something like that. I think what the teaching there is is that if you get hung up on the literal meaning, if you get hung up on the allegorical meaning, you're going to lose your way. And the, and that it was the sage who was able to lose himself completely in that nothingness. Mm-hmm. And when and when we say nothingness, it's not the um, absence of existence or the lack of existence. It's the lack of a category in the mind that we can place that experience. That's the nothingness. So the sage who was able to attain that state and, and sort of experience ego death was able to return. Uh, And so that was my goal all along. I want ego death, (laughs) you know? Um, And that was Rabbi Akiva, right? It was. Yeah. yeah. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Rabbi Akiva makes it back. Final girl, Rabbi Akiva. Right. But in term, and and it's true that you know, uh, I think typically traditionally, we're taught that uh, you're not ready to study Kabbalah until you're forty. I think I was thirty nine, so I was really pushing. I mean, it's probably fine. (laughs) It's probably fine. But uh, I actually, I grew up. I spent the first few years of my life in an ashram. My parents, regardless of their own family backgrounds, followed a guru around the world and. Uh, I sort of refer to myself as a Hindu, uh, where I was raised. That's a term we used in Lexington quite a bit. Oh yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had quite a few. Oh yeah, so uh, yeah, so I was I was one of the Hindus of New England, and um, uh, so I I mean I grew up uh, exposed to and practicing meditation from a very very early age. So I, I w- this wasn't like greenfield territory for me when I decided to attempt this. Uh, you know, it was something. There have been times in my life where I meditated up to four hours in a single sitting. I, I have a daily meditation practice still when I'm not writing. That's at least 20 minutes a day. So uh, I felt pretty confident that whatever I did, I could I could emerge with my sanity and my life intact. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm trying to meditate now, too. And something that really struck me about your poem was when you finally got to this place of nothingness and uh, just being one with everything, uh, your journey to that state was something that I definitely like resonated with. I, you know, I'm really drawn to Zen Buddhism and I've studied it in school before and just really, really love that. So when you reach that state, you are everything, you know, you're beyond everything, but you're everything and yet you're nothing. Um, so that really resonated with me. And when you were saying something about how you know, there are four different ways to interpret the Torah. Um, that's really how I think the three of us approached to reading your poem. 
um, you know, Miriam with her degree in Judaic studies growing up Orthodox, Dan, who uh, is a lifelong heavy metal fan and used to work as a journalist, staying true to his experiences and looking for interesting discussion points. And me with my English degree <laughs> and love for James Joyce and mixed metaphors and philosophy doing a close reading lit analysis. <laughs> so very cool. Yeah, like another thing that really struck me about Ascend Ascend was your exploration of the language, the contradicting metaphors, the strategic repetition at the beginning and end of stanzas that's prayer-like, you know, the blessed is, blessed is, blessed is, um, and how both of those things really led to your deliberate rejection of language to form your own. And uh, you write, quote, the sky lit by heaping nectar is its name. The cloud whose throne is a corpse is its name. Dwell in its presence in dread is its name, end quote. And from a, quote, quill from an angel etching ashes in nothing, end quote, you create your own names of God. Language is limiting. It's definitely a thing that I wholeheartedly believe in. And creating your own names for God sets you free. Absolutely. So for me, uh, when I reflect on on the poem, which I've read, the poems, which I've read now, probably three or four times. I hear, especially in the first section about earth, I hear a repetition that reminds me of a specific prayer recited in the Reformed Synagogue, which my many attempts to say this, the name of this prayer, I screwed up. So we decide I'm just going to refer to it. It's the one that catalogs the various ways in which someone will perish <laughs> yeah. between one Rosh Hashanah and the next. Right. And it has this beautiful repetition of, of who shall and who shall. And I, I kind of heard that, especially in this opening section where it is kind of about the release from the body. And this, the second I, I was hearing metal um, a lot, uh, and when I read the verses, yeah. I'm hearing in my headphones and my brain songs about death, frustration, disease, pain, awakening, and rebirth. And to me, these are these are key themes in a lot of different metal genres. And I hear a blend of, pardon me saying this, Slayer, Cannibal Corpse, and Lamb of God. Mm -hmm. And um, that's coming from me. That That's very high praise. <laughs> right, I'll take it. So I was intrigued, speaking of death, um, by the role of death in this work. There are deep and constant references to death, decay, and rebirth throughout this poem. I almost describe it as transcendent horror. Straight off the bat in the poem, you say, blessed is the transfiguration of terror. There's a lot about death, maggots, rot, mushrooms growing, a sense of climbing out of a grave, rising out of blood and gore to ascend the tree of life in a way that speaks to rebirth and understanding. I've only prepared a dead body for burial once in my life when I was a teenager, which truly is an experience that changed how I viewed everything. But I know in your past, you actually worked as an undertaker. I'm interested to hear how your past experience working with the dead and your familiarity to and proximity to the end of human life shaped your vision for this poem. Yeah, I started working as an undertaker um, just into grad school. I was 23 years old, and I had just started grad school, and I was looking for work that was interesting, that would have flexible hours, and where I could help people. Check, check and check. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so my first choice was actually to work as an EMT, mm -hmm. and uh, but I would have had to go to school for to train to be an EMT, and I had just started this graduate program, so that wasn't an option. And after doing a little bit of research, I learned that, um, in Massachusetts anyway, you could get an, a paid apprenticeship at a funeral home without any formal schooling, uh, that you didn't have to go to mortuary science school first. You could get a paid apprenticeship, and then if you, later you wanted to go to mortuary science school, you could. 
And so that sounded like a good option to me. And um, I was dating myself. I opened the Yellow Pages and cold called a bunch of funeral homes out of the Yellow Pages and just said, hey, I'm looking for um, an opening position. Do you have anything? And at the time, J.S. Waterman and Sons, which was in uh, Kenmore Square, it's the second oldest funeral home in the country and really the biggest one in Boston, uh, said, sure, come on in. And two weeks later, I started working. And, you know, you talked about the your experience preparing a body. My first day, I had never seen a dead body outside of funeral service mm-hmm. uh, before starting this job. My first day on the job, they sent me out to pick up three different bodies. And by day three, I had done seven of those. And... Um, it was a. It was a, like I said, they were the biggest funeral home in Boston at that time. I think they did about three hundred services a year, almost a service a day, wow. uh, almost an, a new person a day. So um, it was busy, <laughs> and it was a really intense period of my life. I I had only planned on doing it for a couple of years until I finished grad school, and I ended up getting licensed and doing it for seven years. And I worked for a number of different funeral homes in the Boston area. Um, I worked for Waterman's. I worked for some in East Boston and the North End. I worked for Stanetsky's in Brookline um, and probably worked on, I don't know, one to 2,000 people over the course of that time. And around the same time, well, I was in grad school, and I remember coming across this quote from Rilke that really struck me. That was fr- it's in at the very beginning of his first elegy in the Duino elegies, where he says, "For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we are still just able to endure." And then he and then he talks about uh, every angel is terrifying, <laughs> and uh, and that really resonated with me with the work that I was doing. This idea that beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror. And the only way that I could process that experience was that I had to be very present for it and I mm-hmm. had to really sit with it. And, you know, there, aside from it feeling sort of emotionally exhausting and traumatic, because it's not just you and the bodies, it's dealing with the families. There's a lot of grief involved, a lot of really heavy emotions. Um, but then there is also this bio, almost biological, like knee jerk reaction aversion to to a dead body and then there's also the irrational fear you know i would i worked a lot of night shifts by myself so then i'd be in the morgue of this you know century-old building with all its creaks and bangs and surrounded by corpses in the morgue and try you know trying to (laughs) get over all of that but eventually i was able to and i found once i was able to that being in the presence of dead people was really grounding and really calming and actually quite comforting mm. in a way that I think some people find um, cemeteries and graveyards to be peaceful places to walk and to feel really sort of rooted, that I, I was able to find that in the work. And I think that because of that, it's it enabled me to play with those imageries that uh, I'm also a metal fan. So I was able <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I totally suspect. Uh, it enabled me to play with that type of imagery, but in a way that was ecstatic and celebratory, and, and, you know, and not trying to sort of build some sort of nightmare. I think it's interesting. You did that for seven years. There's seven realms. Mm. And there are, in this book, seven angelic sigils placed throughout the book. So why did you choose to incorporate those and place them where you did throughout the throughout the progression. So the the book is really 
uh, I see it as one long poem. And although it has a few different sections, I do see it as one long poem. So the sigils actually came into play in sort of uh, the editorial or post-production phase. They didn't come in while I was writing the book. And I was looking for a way to indicate the different sections. And, and there are seven sections in the book. Four of the sections correspond to the four sort of elemental phases of the tree that we talked about. And then we have, and then there's one section um, that represents the abyss. And there's one section, and these are the very short sections, that one's for the abyss, one's for approaching the veil, and one is sort of dwelling in the veil. And each one of those, you know, when we talk about esoteric knowledge, they have archangels that sort of govern those realms or, or have resonances or emanations yeah. that uh, correspond to those realms. And so when I was thinking about ways to denote those sections in the book, I thought, well, uh, you know, let's sort of play with the idea of a printer's mark when you're doing book layout and have printer's marks for the sections, but the printer's marks are the are the corresponding angels that have emanations that go with those areas. So I actually asked one of the other artists who had been in the residency with me, the one who gave me that scroll, <laughs> whether she would create uh, sigils for the seven archangels. Her name's Kay, Kaylinor Siner. Um, and she, uh, she did. She created those sigils, and those are the sigils that you see appearing in the book. Yeah. I'm fascinated by the, the cover art on the book. I definitely see some almost metal font there. And it, it got me thinking about what your musical influences were because your your poetry is very, it's very musical. And the way you read it, uh, to me, sounds like you're singing almost. And I, I wonder what you hear, if anything, when you write. So the cover artist uh, for this edition of the book, his name is Aaron Horky. And he's a fantastic artist, I, I, and I think he actually has done probably a number of tour posters for metal bands, too. <laughs> Even before I wrote this book, you know, I talk about writing from a trance state or in a meditative state. That involved sort of a few different personal rituals I do to kind of set myself up and put me in that place, if you sort of imagine creating the setting for meditation. And one of, you know, and, and there are various somatic elements down to you know, what I'm sipping from, whether I light incense or what I'm smelling, lowering the lights, and then also auditory. And I found that one of the genres that I liked to listen to was sort of doom and drone metal, uh, among other things too, but as long as it was ambient in some way. So I'd listen to sun, earth, sleep. He's <laughs> like, what you know, uh, really heavy, slow droning bands and that sort of became part of the ritual of going into that other state that other brainwave and and while I wa I wasn't actually listening to those bands while I was writing this when I would come down from the tower at the end of the day and I would transcribe it uh, on the scroll which we did in the chapel of the church because it's the only room that was big enough to unroll the whole <laughs> scroll and all the artists would be hanging out there in the evenings together after coming back from wherever they had been creating and so we would listen to music together while we would hang out and I, so I'd be I'd have the scroll rolled out on the chapel transcribing and we would be listening to various metal bands some of the oh, ones I good. mentioned or Chelsea Wolf sometimes or yeah. there's this uh, other there's this other um, musician lingua ignota which is sort of operatic metal too. I'm glad you had some open-minded people with you because I find <laughs> yeah. that listening to metal is often a very solitary experience. It, it, yes so. yeah yeah is that true for when you go to perform your poetry as well and not just write it? Yes. Uh, well, 
Yeah, it's interesting. I've been working on how to perform this work for a long time now. After my last book came out back in 2015, that was the first book I had come out where all the work was written from some sort of trance state. And when I was preparing to tour behind that book, I was thinking about how do I want to read this work? How do I want to perform this work? Because I want to do it in a way that, you know, recognizes and, and um, feels like it does justice to that process. So I wanted the readings themselves to feel ritualistic in some way. When I, I, you know, I've started putting together the tour for this new book, Ascend, Ascend, and there are going to be sort of different levels of performances that happen throughout the year. I have about 30 dates in the in the mix right now. And some of them will just sort of be in-store book readings where I'll probably do a reading kind of like what I did here. And then we'll do sort of conversation with the author or whatever. But um, I'm working on a few other um, types of performances. One is a seven city tour with Atlas Obscura, if you're familiar with that organization. Yes. Yeah. So we're doing, yes. we're setting up uh, se seven cities. Again, we're working with a number yep. seven here. A <laughs> uh, seven city tour around the country. Um, and they'll be in um, very select locations like chapels, old mansions, monasteries, cemeteries, things like that. And those will be full ritualized performances of the book in its entirety. And that will have, I'm, I'm working on some instrumentation that will have some drone in the background and some other musical elements that go with it. I'll be setting lights, I'll be lighting incense, and I'll be doing a full sort of ritualized performance. And I want those readings to feel initiatory you know yeah. i think the most potent form of magic is performance so yeah and speaking of performers and adding a musical element what's it like being published by a literary imprint of a record label and yeah. jack white's no less who's mm -hmm. amazing yeah it's i honestly it's been a fantastic partnership i uh i I've been a fan of his music for a long time and goes back many years. The editor at Third Man, Chet, he was in a band too called the Immortal Lee County Killers, which I used to listen to in my early 20s on uh, when I was sort of in the van going on these sort of DIY punk rock poetry tours around the country. Yes. Many years ago, uh, I, had, I had lost some of the Immortal Lee County Killers albums that I had, and they, were, they had broken up. And so I emailed Chet out of the blue and said, hey, you don't know me, but I love your music, and I lost some of your albums, and I'm wondering if you still have any lying around. I'd love to buy them off of you. And I had written him from my email address that was um, Black Ocean, the publishing company I run. And so Chet saw that and emailed me back, and he said, hey, uh, I'm actually a big poetry fan, and I'm thinking going back to school for poetry. I'll just trade you some books for some records. And what? that's and that's how the friendship started. And this was, you know, he wasn't involved with Third Man or anything. He was just So fast forward many years, we've become friends. He gets tapped to be the editor for Third Man Books when they're launching the imprint. So he so now I'm sort of working in this unofficial consulting capacity for him. He's like, so you know, so how does the book industry differ from the record industry? How does distribution work and printing? And I'm sort of advising him on all this stuff. Um, and they did, they did a box set to kind of kick things off, and he invited me to be a contributor to that. And we're having one of these conversations, and I had just finished writing my last book, and he, and he's asking me this question. I said, "Hey, you know, if you're gonna publish more books, I just finished writing a manuscript. Do you want to look at it?" And he said, "Yeah, we're meeting with Jack in two weeks. Send it over." <laughs> so I, I had spent ten years writing that book. 
And within, I think, like six weeks, I had it, it got acquired. And then like four months later, it was published. It was like super fast tracked. Oh, my God. And and it, and the reason why I say it's such a great partnership was because I, I was kind of their first pancake. I was their first single author book. And I think it was a great uh, partnership for them in that I could kind of hold their hand a little bit and say, this is how publicity works for a book. This is these are the things we need to do. And I got amazing support from them because I'm not your traditional author. I love to tour. You know, I'll, I'm more like a band. You know, I'll go into the studio, a.k.a. my 100-year-old church. I'll record an album, write my book, you know, over a few weeks, and then I'll tour behind it for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they know how to support an artist like that. And so it's been really great working with them. And, and one another really interesting little factoid piece of serendipity about the book. So like a record label, they number each book. You know, TMB 001, TMB 002, et cetera. So we finished the book. The designer is sending me the proofs and the layout and everything. And I'm looking at the cover and I see that Ascend, Ascend, my little crypto piece of Ascension literature, poetry, is TMB 26. And if you know anything about uh, Gematria, 26 is the numerical value of Y. Y-H-V-H. Yeah, the UK 5K. Yeah. The Tetragrammaton. Yes. So the again, name of God. The name of God, right? <laughs> uh, so my 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 book of Ascension literature is TMB 26, the numerical value for the name of God. That's amazing. Okay, so at the end of our podcast, we like to kind of have some fun with a little speed round of questions. Ashley, take it away. The white stripes, the raconteurs. Or the dead weather? Uh, the White Stripes. I actually used to listen to the White Stripes when I worked in the funeral home, and I would kind of do air guitar in between the mortuary beds. Favorite angel in the Jewish tradition and why? Well, you know, Lucifer was God's favorite angel. <laughs> uh, and, and while I hate to disagree with God, uh, I'd have to say, actually, my favorite angel is probably from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, well, okay. That's, <laughs> I think we can all get behind that. Oh I think God, we can all great. get behind that. That's so great. Yep. Right, your favorite non-poetry book? I'm a huge fan of Jean Genet's writing. The Thief's Journal was a, a big influence on me early on. So arguably poetry, but... Uh, <laughs> Lyric prose, yeah. Favorite Jewish prophetic figure or prophecy? Going back to the beginning of, of our discussion, I'd probably have to go with Ezekiel. Yeah, go bigger, go home. Yeah. <laughs> and as national haiku champion, can you give us a haiku that sums up your experiences either doing this podcast or working on Ascend Ascend? Sure. Sitting in my chair just before you press record the pop of plosive peas. <laughs> awesome. I think you just won. Yeah, yeah <laughs> just won just won. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, Jonica, thank you so much for being with us here today on the Vibe of the Tribe. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Listeners, to learn more about Ascend, Ascend, check out the show notes for this episode. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and tune in. You can follow at Jewish Boston on social media for all our great content. Thanks, as always, to our editor and mascot, Jesse, and to Ryan for our music. See you next time, guys. Mm-hmm.